Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, chapter 62. Now that we have read this exchange in Alma chapters 60 and 61 between Moroni and Pehoran, now that we have been through most of the storytelling narrative of these accounts of war in the latter part of the book of Alma, and now, of course, that we have read Helaman's epistles to Moroni, we can realize that we've seen things from three primary perspectives. The first is from the perspective of the military leader, Moroni. Many of these chapters have provided us with that. Then we've read from the perspective of Helaman, and of course Alma chapters 56, 57, and 58 provided us with that perspective. Then finally, and most recently, we've been able to see things from Pehoran's perspective, and uh, that of course was in Alma chapter 61. So Pehoran is the leader of the government, Uh, Moroni is the military leader, and of course Helaman is the leader of the church, who temporarily is also acting in the capacity of a military leader. Each of these leaders in their respective spheres in this part of the book of Alma have been beset with problems. Most recently in Moroni and Helaman's case, they haven't received the supplies and the provisions, the food and the troops that they needed. They've been in a constant state of battle with the Lamanites uh, in their efforts to retake captured cities. And now we know from the most recent chapter that Pehoran as well has been beset with problems, that he has been dealing with the resurgence of the kingmen to the degree, in fact, that he was pushed out of Zarahemla and had to flee to the land of Gideon. Well, each of these three perspectives from these three figureheads will find their resolution in this chapter, in Alma chapter 62. This will read as a sequence of events in this chapter that follow after Moroni's fulfillment of Pehoran's request to come to Gideon. This idea was first proposed from Moroni's perspective in his epistle in chapter 60 when he said on several occasions, I come unto you in Zarahemla. He said it that way in verse 27. And he says, if there be any among you that has a desire for freedom, yea, if there be even a spark of freedom remaining, behold, I will stir up insurrections among you, even until those who have desires to usurp power and authority shall become extinct. Then this same idea is put forward in more positive tones by Pehoran in the next chapter, in Alma chapter 61, as he replies to Moroni. And he says, gather together whatsoever force ye can upon your march hither, 
and we will go speedily against those dissenters in the strength of our God according to the faith which is in us. So Moroni, when he proposed this, he had a more vague idea of who the dissenters were. And then Pehoran in his reply makes it clear exactly who the dissenters are and that he, with unified intentions with Moroni and a unified sense of cause, uh, they will combine forces and they will go against these dissenters in the way that Moroni intended it more generally. So this chapter, Alma chapter 62, will open with the execution of that particular plan. And verse 3 will say that Moroni took a small number of men, according to the desire of Pehoran, and he gave Lehi and Teancum command over the remainder of his army, and took his march towards the land of Gideon. We'll read here that as Moroni does so, he raises the standard of liberty, as verse 4 tells us, and as he has done so well at other times, he gathers people to his standard rallies them to the cause of liberty and of freedom and the cause of Christ, as he expressed it in Alma chapter 46, and he brings them to Gideon. What follows is remarkable indeed, and we will cover these details in the flyover summary and then, of course, in a reading as well. But suffice it to say here that uh, Zarahemla is recovered by Moroni and Pehoran. And once Zarahemla is secured, Aid can then finally be sent to Helaman. So coming back to the perspective of Helaman's need, he is maintaining cities on the western front of this war, in this uh, western or southwestern quarter, as it has been called. Helaman will finally receive the aid that he originally envisioned when he asked for it in Alma chapter 58 and even sent an envoy to Zarahemla. Well, finally, Zarahemla is recovered And Zarahemla, this government that is now again headed by Pehoran, now has the ability to send this aid to Helaman. So now with Pehoran's issue resolved, and with Helaman's issue resolved, this allows Moroni to turn to the final issue at hand in this Nephite-Lamanite war. With the Lamanites having been completely cleared from the southwestern quarter of the land by Helaman, as we read in Alma chapter 58, They are now all concentrated in the southeast, and here they are led by Amaron himself, and they still occupy the cities of Nephiha, and of Lehi, and of Moroni, and others. So we'll read about that. So as we move into this chapter, that is what has yet to be resolved, since again, Pehoran has been reinstalled, and Helaman has finally received the aid that he needs in order to maintain the cities that he has reconquered. So Moroni needs to defeat the Lamanites in these remaining cities in the southeast, and we'll read that he indeed does so. This leads to something that we have hardly even dared to imagine at this point, such an outcome, and it is the total expulsion of the remaining Lamanites from the Nephite nation. Since now things have been resolved across all three of these perspectives— in the world of Helaman, in the world of Pehoran, and now in the world of Moroni. Then Alma chapter 62 will show us what these three men do next. We find that Moroni will retire at this point, and he gives the the rule of the military over to his son Moroni Ha. We'll find that Pehoran returns to the judgment seat, and that he reforms and regulates the laws of the land. And we'll find that Helaman returns to the work of regulating the church 
and leading the church. So in this way, as we come to the end of Alma chapter 62, we are brought to a much-needed resolution of the wars that began in this latter section of the book of Alma, particularly with the rise of Amalekiah, once he actually made inroads into the Nephite nation in Alma chapter 51. This resolution of affairs, even if it is short-lived, is important for us to arrive at at this point, I think, and it can show us that these, these types of resolutions, these moments, can seem impossible to achieve, but it is possible, and that's what the Book of Mormon, I think, is showing us, and that such resolution in the ongoing war between good and evil is possible in our time as well. And it's also most certainly possible in an ultimate sense, and it is shown in the Scriptures, particularly in the Book of Revelation, where ultimately Satan, that great dragon, will be cast into the pit, never to return again. And the forces of good will be allowed to triumph, and those who are exalted will be allowed into the eternal city and will find unfettered access to the tree of life. In other words, as the warriors that Moroni described in his epistle in Alma chapter 60, they will be allowed to enter into the rest of the Lord. And that will also be our fate if we keep our covenants and find ourselves on the right side of this war between good and evil that will one day ultimately find its resolution. With those introductory thoughts, let's look now at the structure of this chapter, Alma chapter 62. It has 52 verses. The first section of this chapter, in verses 1 and 2, shows us Moroni's reaction to Pehoran's epistle. Uh, Pehoran's loyalty to Moroni, then, is confirmed. And Moroni undoubtedly would have rejoiced in this and would have felt um, a sense of great gratitude that uh, Pehoran possessed the character that he did. We also find in this section that Moroni mourns over the iniquity of the kingmen and their return to power. In verses 3 through 5, we find Moroni fulfilling Pehoran's request to gather a few men and go to Gideon and then to gather loyalists along the way. So we'll read that he does this, and then in verse 6 we'll discover that Moroni does arrive in Gideon and that he does gather loyalists. In fact, he gathers with a large army. Then combined with Pehoran's force, which we knew from Pehoran's epistle was being added to daily as they were in Gideon, and that it was already sufficiently intimidating to those kingmen in Zarahemla that they dared not attack. Now with Moroni's large army combined with this one, uh, an army has resulted that is stronger than that of this uh, king of the kingmen, who here is named as Pacchus. And of course, he is what who we might call the dissenter king of Zarahemla. So now, as we would expect in verses 7 and 8, Moroni and Pehoran and their combined army attacks Zarahemla. In this, Pacchus is slain, and Pehoran is restored to the judgment seat. After this occurs, in verses 9 and 10, the remaining kingmen in this battle are tried and they are executed. So now we have found a resolution in Zarahemla. And in verse 11, it'll tell us that peace is restored to Zarahemla, and this is at the end of the 30th year of the reign of the judges. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, since peace has been restored and we've found a resolution from the perspective of Pehoran, uh, where he sits in Zarahemla, now we turn to Helaman, because we still need that to be resolved. So 
From Helaman's perspective, we find in verses 12 and 13 that Moroni, with Pehoran's help, sends reinforcements. This time it is 6,000 men, plus ample provisions. He sends those to Helaman, who's in the west, and also Moroni sends these reinforcements that are also much needed to Lehi and Teancum, who are in the east. So finally, with Pehoran back in the judgment seat, uh, the king men put down, Pacchus slain, and peace restored in Zarahemla, this aid can finally be sent to these very deserving parties. Now, since Helaman's task is simply to maintain what he has already reconquered, and now that he has ample reinforcements so that he can do that, we turn our attention in verses 15 through 17 to the remaining Nephite cities that are still occupied by Lamanites and the task that lies ahead of Moroni to somehow expel the Lamanites from these cities and to recapture them. So we find that Moroni and Pehoran together, so Pehoran uh, doesn't stay at the judgment seat just yet. He goes into battle with Moroni, further revealing his incredible character, I think. Moroni and Pehoran march together with a large army uh, to retake first the city of Nephiha. That's their first target. And we can remember how we read of the fall of Nephiha in Alma chapter 59. From what we can tell at the end of Alma chapter 55, Moroni's next intended move was to reclaim the city of Morianton. But instead, Nephiha was where he had to direct his attention, and it fell in Alma chapter 59. And so now with this large army, he's finally able to come back to this issue and to kind of pick up where he left off, and, and we pick up where we left off in the narrative as well. So that may, uh, Moroni comes back to this southeast quarter, and he wants to reclaim Nephiha, which was clearly one of the strongholds for the Lamanites. Interestingly, as this large combined army of Moroni's and Pehorans, as they travel to Nephiha to conquer it, they encounter many Lamanites along the way, and they conquer them along the way. And in fact, they make covenants with those who are willing, uh, a covenant of peace, and they send 4,000 covenant-making Lamanites to Jershon. That number is quite interesting because that's how many kingmen were lost in Alma chapter 51. And here, covenant-making Lamanites are gained. And they go, once again, Jershon figures in as a place of refuge. They go to Jershon. Moroni and Pehoran and this large army, who will now kind of collectively be referred to as Moroni, do arrive at Nephiha, and they camp at the plains of Nephiha that are on the periphery of the city itself. Their intention is to fight the Lamanites. Uh, Their army is large enough, uh, we can see kind of contextually here, that they dare to uh, simply have a a head-to-head battle with the Lamanites in this instance, but the Lamanites will not respond in kind. They do not want to have a battle, um, suggesting that even though Nephiha was such a stronghold and that the Lamanites were so strong at this point, and they're all really concentrated into this region, uh, they still uh, think it best not to come against Moroni and his armies. So what will result, as it has at other points in this uh, storytelling narrative, is that if the Lamanites will not come out of their fortified city and give battle to the Nephites, then it's necessary to engage in some type of strategy. We saw this with Helaman and his 2,000 warriors. We saw it with Moroni and the way that he retook the city of Gid and on several other occasions. And we're going to see another very fascinating 
and a, a kind of enjoyable to read variation of of this this type of strategy. And and we'll see this here in verses twenty through twenty three. Since the Lamanites won't come out and give battle to Moroni, Moroni and his armies, what he does is when night comes, as it says in verse twenty, when night came, he finds the position of the Lamanites within the city walls of Nephiha. So he he realizes that they are camped altogether at the eastern part of the city, and so. Moroni decides to get strong cords and ladders, as it says, and he and his army enter the opposite side of the city while uh, the Lamanite armies are sleeping, and they actually enter the city by night in this way. So in verses 24 through 26, we find that the Lamanites of Nephiha awake to find that Moroni and his armies, to their terror, are inside of the city. So the result of this is that uh, some of these Lamanites attempt to flee, and in fact, some are successful in fleeing. They make it to the city of Moroni, which is another stronghold and is the very first of those brand new cities that was mentioned in Alma chapter 50. So some do flee to Moroni in their terror. Some are killed, and then some are captured. We'll read of something really curious in verses 27 through 29, where many of those Lamanites who were captured... So again, there were some who fled successfully to Moroni, some who were killed, and some who were captured. Among those who were captured, some were willing to make a covenant of peace with Moroni. So here he is again, uh, even in this this kind of final chapter of his career, he uh, he is still willing to, um, uh, to to give his combatants this opportunity to make a covenant of peace. Many of these Lamanites are willing to do this, as it says. The word "many" has given. And they make this covenant, and they too, along with those earlier 4,000 that were mentioned, they too go to Jershon. And uh, they are able there to live in freedom. And in fact, it says that they tilled the ground and were able to raise all manner of grain and to follow after this more agrarian lifestyle, uh, something we I think we, we first read of clear back in the Zenith account talked about how Zenith and his people worked the ground and, and raised flocks and herds, while the, the Lamanites tended to be a more marauding and indolent and idle people, kind of in the same way that Enos described them. So here, these covenant-making Lamanites go to Jershon and live in the same way that other covenant-making Lamanites have learned to live in that area. That's very fascinating. And we'll come back to the text and look at this in more detail, of course. But it's an example, once again, of the Savior's way of dealing with enemies. And Moroni always gives his enemies this opportunity to follow the Savior's way as well, which is, instead of destroying one's enemies, they can be, on certain occasions, transformed. And then allies are gained in the process. It's a quite a, an amazing thing to see. And Moroni never gives up on that possibility with his combatants. And uh, here that does take place. So now in verses 30 through 31, Moroni is, is done conquering Nephiha. So now it's time to focus on the other remaining cities that are still occupied by the Lamanites. Well, he moves upon the city of Lehi then. Lehi is another one of those new cities that was mentioned in Alma chapter 50. In this case, there is no fight. And those Lamanites, they vacate without conflict. So Nephiha has been taken with some conflict, but not in the way that was envisioned. It did not happen on the plains of Nephiha. It happened through stratagem. And uh, then the people of Lehi are, are pretty much intimidated out of their city. And again, they vacate without conflict. 
Then in verses 32 through 34, we read more generally that the Lamanites continue to be driven from all of these cities in this region. So they're driven from all remaining cities. Uh, Now, this is true of all of those cities except for the city of Moroni. That is the final stronghold. Remember, that's the place that the um, Lamanites from Nephihah fled to. So Moroni's army then focuses on the city of Moroni at this point. They camp around the city of Moroni, and here is where all remaining Lamanites can be found. So Helaman has expelled the Lamanites from his quarter through everything that we read, and now Moroni has successfully expelled all of the Lamanites from his quarter, all except those who are in Moroni. And so the entire Lamanite army, led by Amron himself, are all collected in the city of Moroni. So now with all remaining Lamanites surrounded, we anticipate a battle. But something else is going to happen here in verses 35 through 37. While the combatants are asleep, it says that they did encamp for the night. In verse 35, Teancum strikes again. As we know at the end of Alma chapter 51, at night, Teancum found himself to Amalekiah's camp and actually to his tent, and he stabbed him in the heart with a javelin. He has the same intention here for Amalekiah's brother, Amaron. So while all others are sleeping, Teancum does find his way to Amaron's tent, and he succeeds in slaying Amaron, but he doesn't hit Amaron as directly as he did Amalekiah with his javelin, and uh, a sound is made. Amaron's servants hear this. Teancum's presence is detected then by these servants, and they kill him. And so this is the end of Teancum's life, and uh, we see just how sorrowful Moroni and his men are over the death of Teancum. Tribute will be paid to Teancum in verse 37, in fact, where it says that he had suffered very many exceedingly sore afflictions, and he had been a man who had fought valiantly for his country, was a true friend of liberty. So now that this thing has occurred, uh, that night before this anticipated battle, um, where we lose Amaron, or the Lamanites lose Amaron and we lose Teancum, now in verses uh, in verse 38, we find the, that this confrontation does happen between this large Nephite army and the, the remainder of the Lamanites, and their task is to drive them out of the city of Moroni. So that's what happens in verse 38. Here there is all-out war, and the Nephites slay the Lamanites with a great slaughter, it says, and they drive them out of the land, and then it says even that they did not return at that time against the Nephites. So here, finally, we see, after the Lamanite ingress that we read of in Alma chapter 51, that finally, the Lamanites have been driven out of the entire Nephite nation. Those beautiful fortified cities that we read of earlier, that the Lamanites um, came to occupy, have now finally been cleared, and they are now the property again of the Nephites. So that's a resolution that we've been looking for for a long time, and we finally come to it here in Alma chapter 62, and it's now possible to see what these three leaders, Moroni, Pehoran, and Helaman, do in this season of peace. And as we might anticipate, Moroni will fortify the land. We read of that in verse 42, so he will continue to fortify, and then he'll transfer his command to his son Moronihah in verse 43. 
Then we'll see in just a moment what Pehorin and what Helaman do. First, however, there is a section here in verses 39 through 41 where we get Mormon's retrospective on the Nephite-Lamanite war. Uh, that, again, began particularly, although there were uh, battles before this, of course, like in Alma 43 and 44, and then the one in Alma 49, but beginning particularly in Amalekai's successful invasion in Alma chapter 51. And what Mormon will talk about here is how it is that some from the experiences of war were hardened, while others from the experiences of war were actually softened. Then, as I just mentioned a moment ago, we come to verse 42 and find Mormon for, or Moroni fortifying the land. Now that the Nephites are gone and there's this season of peace, he immediately goes to fortifying the land against future invasion. And then after he does this, and, and that, of course, is an instructive thing that he does, then he finally returns to Zarahemla. And then Helaman, he is able to do the same as well. So we see these two great leaders, these two military leaders, are able to leave the field of battle. Uh, Moroni in what seems to be the, the southwest uh, quarter, and Helaman in, excuse me, Helaman in the southwest quarter, and, Mor- and Moroni what ha- seems to be the southeast quarter. They both now are able to return to the city of Zarahemla and to fulfill their respective roles there. So once that time comes, we find Moroni kind of retiring in verse 43, and we'll see if his uh, that he will pass away actually in the next chapter. But he transfers command to his son Moroni Ha in verse 43. Then for Pehoran's part, this third perspective, Pehoran returns to the judgment seat. We see this in verse 44. And then in verse 47, we'll see that Pehoran makes regulations concerning the law and that uh, judges and chief judges are chosen. So Pehoran brings stability back to the Nephite government and brings some normalcy back to it. And then we see Helaman in verses 44 through 46 resuming the work of the church, and, and he regulates. It says that it, it, it was expedient in verse 44 that a regulation should be made again in the church. That's something that we read of in Alma chapter 45, actually, when Helaman was first installed uh, as the leader of the church. The same verbiage was used, actually, in verse 21 of Alma chapter 45, where it says, yea, that a regulation should be made throughout the church. And in that instance, Helaman and his brethren went forth to establish the church again in all the land. So we'll see Helaman doing the same thing here in Alma chapter 62 and in verses 44 through 46. Now, we'll discover, as we would anticipate, that the Nephites begin finally to prosper during this season of peace. But we're very relieved and happy to see in verses 48 through 51 that in their newfound peace and prosperity, they are not lifted in pride, and they are not slow to remember. So we'll read all about that. And then we'll read of the passing of this great multidimensional man, Helaman in verse 52. So we'll come back to that and talk about that as well. So now returning to verse 1 for a reading. And now it came to pass that when Moroni had received this epistle, his heart did take courage. So that's his first response. So that shows his greatness. He didn't become petty either when he received Pehoran's response. I'm sure he was humbled by it because of the way in which he had accused Pehoran 
And then the way that Pehoran uh, replied so gracefully was instructive to Moroni, and he took that instruction to heart, and he was humble enough about it that uh, he didn't respond by defending himself. It just says that his heart did take courage. He, he, was, he was assured of Pehoran's greatness. Then it says, and was filled with exceedingly great joy because of the faithfulness of Pehoran, that he was not also a traitor to the freedom and cause of his country. So that's what was happening here. Moroni strongly suspected, as did Helaman, that there were traitors to the freedom and cause of his country. He was not sure if Pehoran was among them or not. Now he knows for sure that Pehoran was not, and that in him he still has a powerful ally. Verse 2, But he did also mourn exceedingly because of the iniquity of those who had driven Pehoran from the judgment seat, yea, and fine, because of those who had rebelled against their country and also their God. Again, it's a king, man. They tried to do it in Alma chapter 51 and failed. And now Moroni mourns exceedingly because he can see that they finally succeeded in that design. And of course, they also entered into an alliance with the Lamanites. Verse 3, now here's this plan, and Moroni will now head to Gideon. And it came to pass that Moroni took a small number of men according to the desire of Pehoran. And of course, also according to the intimation and the threat of Moroni in his epistle, and gave Lehi Antiochum command over the remainder of his army, and took his march towards the land of Gideon. And he did raise the standard of liberty in whatsoever place he did enter. So this is the part that's really curious to us, because we knew that he would try to gather forces uh, to gather armies and loyalists along the way as he traveled to Gideon. So it says that. Um, To do so, he raised the standard of liberty, and, as verse 4 goes on, and gained whatsoever force he could in all his march towards the land of Gideon. How successful was this then? Well, verse 5 says, And it came to pass that thousands did flock unto his standard, and did take up their swords in the defense of their freedom, that they might not come into bondage. So, we know that Amalekiah was a great flatterer and persuader in his own right, but Moroni was clearly without peer in his ability to rally people to the standard of liberty, unto his standard, as it says in verse 5, to inspire them, to rally them, and to persuade them in this way to take up their swords in defense of their freedom. President Benson once applied this particular episode to the the task in this dispensation to uh, rally to the standard of freedom in the performance of, of our civic responsibilities. He said, In America, the Lord's base of operations, so designated by the Lord himself through his holy prophets, we of the priesthood, members of his restored church, might well provide the balance of power to save our freedom. Indeed, we might, if we go forward as General Moroni of old, and raise the standard of liberty throughout the land. Today our prophet and president has said, No greater immediate responsibility rests upon members of the church, upon all citizens of this republic and of neighboring republics, than to protect the freedom vouchsafed by the Constitution of the United States. Now here President Benson is not speaking as the prophet. That's why he says today our prophet and president has said. He's in a general conference and he is um, repeating what the prophet at that time said. Then he goes on by saying, Is this plain enough? In view of this solemn warning, How can any member of the church fail to act to help save our freedom? We must not be lulled away into a false security. We have a prophet today. What we need is a listening ear. 
Let us live the gospel in its fullness, and by so doing, we will work unceasingly to preserve and strengthen our God-given freedom. Well, this was uh, an October conference report in 1966. President Benson was a champion of freedom and sounded uh, very much like Moroni in in much of the language that he used, and then, of course, later became the prophet of the church. He was able to broadcast that standard of liberty and freedom to the entire world, and he particularly did that with his message of flooding the earth with the Book of Mormon, since the Book of Mormon contains that message with such clarity, and we're reading it right here. Well, now, uh, verse 6, we find Moroni arriving at Gideon with his large army with thousands. Then he combines that with Pehoran's force. Verse 6, And thus when Moroni had gathered together whatsoever men he could in all his march, he came to the land of Gideon, and uniting his forces with those of Pehoran, they became exceedingly strong, even stronger than the men of Pachas. All right, so there Pachas is finally named. We get the name of this person who toppled Pehoran and took over Zarahemla and became the king that the king men always wanted. It's Pacchus. So uh, this force, combined force, was even stronger than the men of Pacchus, who was the king of those dissenters who had driven the free men out of the land of Zarahemla and had taken possession of the land. Now, I've, I've used the term king men here several times to describe these who opposed the free men. But it is curious that in uh, Pehoran's letter in Alma chapter 61 and also in this account in Alma chapter 62, they are never named as the kingmen. So um, uh, at least not yet. They will be a couple verses later. But why uh, they are slow to be named as such, I'm, I'm really not quite sure. Back to the name Pacchus, however, Hugh Nibley has said that Pacchus is a very interesting name. It's perfectly good Egyptian and means he who is praised. It means a person who is praised, blessed, or favored of God. Uh, Mohammed means the same thing. This, as Spencer J. Condi has pointed out, is really a display of unity. This way that these two men have come together and laid any petty disagreements aside and have refused to take offense, um, especially in Pehoran's amazing uh, example, uh, with Pehoran's amazing example. This is really a display of unity. And and, um, Elder Condi said the following, After Moroni received Pehoran's gracious reply, his heart did take courage. He began to march toward the land of Gideon, and thousands did flock unto his standard, and did take up their swords in the defense of their freedom. As Moroni and Pehoran united their forces, they became exceedingly strong and successfully rooted out the kingmen, the internal dissenters who would have toppled the government from within. After being placed on trial in accordance with the laws of the land, those kingmen, whosoever would not take up arms in the defense of their country, but would fight against it, were put to death. So, it's all potential energy so far. We're only seeing so far in verse 6 that Moroni's forces are stronger than that of Pacchus. But now in verse 7, we'll see how this actually plays out. And it came to pass that Moroni and Pehoran went down with their armies into the land of Zarahemla, and went forth against the city, and did meet the men of Pacchus, insomuch that they did come to battle. And behold, Pacchus was slain, and his men were taken prisoners, and Pehoran was restored to his judgment seat. And I have to apologize at this point. I, I just decided to question my <coughs> own pronunciation of uh, this man's name, 
P-A-C-H-U-S, and I went to the pronunciation guide, and, and there it seems to be a long A in the pronunciation guide, so apparently it's, it's more correct to call him Pecos. I did not stop to listen to the audible scriptures here, which I sometimes do to see how Lloyd Newell pronounces these, uh, so we'll have to do that at another time, but apparently it's Pecos. Now that he has been executed uh, or, or killed in battle, uh, those who supported him will be tried and executed. So verse 9, And the men of Pecos received their trial according to the law, and also those king men who had been, so there the, the, the term is finally used, who had been taken and cast into prison, and they were executed according to the law. Yea, those men of Pecos and those king men Whosoever would not take up arms in the defense of their country, but would fight against it, were put to death. Here, as Ogden and Skinner point out, those who refused to take up arms and defend their country and their liberty were considered guilty of treason. And we certainly saw that the king men were guilty of that in Alma chapter 51. Those who fought against or even taught against the cause of freedom were put to death as traitors. Verse 10. And thus it became expedient that this law should be strictly observed for the safety of their country, yea, and whosoever was found denying their freedom was speedily executed according to the law. The Book of Mormon student manual says, Treason is a serious offense. Pecos and his kingmen were committed to the overthrow of Nephite freedom. They insisted on trying to destroy the very thing Moroni's soldiers were fighting for and dying to preserve. This neither Moroni nor Pehoran could condone in the slightest. It was difficult enough to have to fight aggression from outside their country, but to have to battle foes within as well was unthinkable. Following their capture, the evil men of Pecos were executed if they would not take up arms to defend their country. Verse 11, And thus ended the thirtieth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. Moroni and Pehoran having restored peace to the land of Zarahemla among their own people, having inflicted death upon all those who were not true to the cause of freedom. So, from Pehoran's perspective, from the perspective of the trouble that we learned of in Alma chapter 61 that had taken place in Zarahemla, that is now resolved. And now we turn our attention to those who are fighting on the front lines, those in the field of battle. Uh, So, in the west, it's Helaman who's maintaining And in the east, it's Lehi and Teancum that are fighting. Verse 12, And it came to pass in the commencement of the thirty and first year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, Moroni immediately caused that provision should be sent, and also an army of six thousand men should be sent unto Helaman to assist him in preserving that part of the land. And he also caused that an army of six thousand men with a sufficient quantity of food should be sent to the armies of Lehi and Teancum, And it came to pass that this was done to fortify the land against the Lamanites. It's interesting that an equal measure seemed to have been given to both leaders on both fronts, those those two separate fronts, east and west, uh, where uh, Helaman was not in the act of fighting right now. He was in the act of preserving and maintaining and fortifying, but he still needed these troops and provisions, and it was long overdue, so they are still sent to him. And then Lehi and Teancum are probably more actively involved in fighting, or at least they're preparing to do so, because they have yet to expel all of the Lamanites from their region. So now, uh, with that end in mind, uh, it's time for Moroni to aid in that as well. So he and Pehoran will now march with their large combined army 
and uh, their goal will be to retake Nephihop. So verse 14, And it came to pass that Moroni and Pehoran, leaving a large body of men in the land of Zarahemla, took their march with a large body of men towards the land of Nephiha, being determined to overthrow the Lamanites in that city. Well, they're determined to throw the Lamanites, overthrow the Lamanites in that city, and there are many of them, and they are well fortified. Yet, we can see that Moroni and Pehoran left a large body of men in Zarahemla. So, they're still having to dedicate some of their resources to maintaining the peace in that region, even though they have accomplished what they just have. Uh, they're undoubtedly doing that so that there can't be yet another insurrection and another, um, uh, that there still must or potentially are those who are still sympathetic to the cause of the king men, even if uh, more tacitly so. And so they leave a large body of men in the land of Zarahemla. So their army in that sense is still somewhat divided because of this burden of the king men. So that's important, I think, to note. It still says that it's a large body of men that they took towards the land of Nephi, huh? and we can tell that it is because they're still able to overwhelm the Lamanites once they arrive there. So again, in verse 14, they are determined to overthrow the Lamanites in the city of Nephi. Huh? So that's that's the, that seems to be the main stronghold in this region. So that's where they're headed first, and of course, it just fell very recently, uh, as was related in Alma chapter 59. Verse 15 And it came to pass that as they were marching towards the land, they took a large body of men of the Lamanites and slew many of them and took their provisions and their weapons of war. So this would make sense that as they entered this region, the Lamanites were in many places. They weren't just in the city of Nephi, they were in several other cities as well. Uh, Moroni and Lehi, most notably, as we'll read as we move farther into this chapter. But there were also Lamanites more generally in the wilderness. They were they were in the land. And, and so as Moroni and Pehoran and their armies are, are going to Nephi, they encounter these Lamanites. So they uh, do battle with them. They, sl- they slay many of them, as it says in verse uh, 15, and they procure their provisions and weapons of war. Then something very interesting happens here. It's this transformation of the enemy instead of the annihilation of the enemy. It's this other option that the Book of Mormon shows us on so many occasions. And it came to pass after they had taken them, they caused them to enter into a covenant that they would no more take up their weapons of war against the Nephites. And when they had entered into this covenant, we can guess maybe that there are some who didn't, because every time this covenant has been offered in the past, it seems that there are some who don't. But when they had entered into this covenant, they sent them to dwell with the people of Ammon, and they were in number about 4,000 who had not been slain. Reynolds and Sojal kind of rephrase this account by saying, Providence lent a helping hand in their undertaking. As they followed a course that would lead them to the stricken city of Nephi, they came across a large company of Lamanitish warriors. The army of Moronites immediately attacked them, slew many, and took their provisions and weapons of war. To the number of 4,000, the Nephites also took prisoners, indoctrinated them according to Nephite beliefs, and at their own request sent them to join their brethren, the people of Ammon. This incident in Moroni's campaign was not an accident. It proves that the Lord is willing to and does help his people in their difficulties if they keep his commandments. Well, it's a very interesting little aside here uh, that we're told. 
in these verses before Moroni's army arrives at Nephihah. So now they do arrive at Nephihah as we come to verse 18. And it came to pass that when they had sent them away, meaning those Lamanites, away to Jershon, they pursued their march towards the land of Nephihah. And it came to pass that when they had come to the city of Nephihah, they did pitch their tents in the plains of Nephihah, which is near the city of Nephihah. So they're in the plains. They're outside the city at its periphery. Verse 19, Now Moroni was desirous that the Lamanites should come out to battle against them upon the plains. But the Lamanites, knowing of their exceedingly great courage and beholding the greatness of their numbers, therefore they durst not come out against them, therefore they did not come to battle in that day. So this would have been very intimidating to the people uh, that were inside the city of Nephi, ha, these Lamanites. They know that the Nephites, especially under Moroni's leadership, have a history of defeating the Lamanites in battle, even when they're outnumbered. This, this then uh, speaks to their great courage. But these Lamanites can also see that these um, Nephite armies under Moroni's leadership are also great in numbers. So these Lamanites know they're in real trouble, and they refuse to go out and meet uh, Moroni on the plains of Nephi. So it's time for stratagem again, and we'll read about this in verses 20 through 23. And when the night came, Moroni went forth in the darkness of the night, and came upon the top of the wall to spy out in what part of the city the Lamanites did camp with their army. And it came to pass that they were on the east by the entrance, and they were all asleep. And now Moroni returned to his army and caused that they should prepare in haste strong cords and ladders to be let down from the top of the wall into the inner part of the wall. And it came to pass that Moroni caused that his men should march forth and come upon the top of the wall and let themselves down into that part of the city, yea, even on the west, where the Lamanites did not camp with their armies. So within the city walls of Nephi, this city is clearly large enough that when the Lamanites set up camp for the night within the city, they were concentrated on the east side of the city. And that was far enough away from the western wall that there was uh, time and space for the Nephite armies to scale that wall, to get atop of it, and to let themselves down inside the city. So this is quite an amazing thing we're reading of here. Verse 23, And it came to pass that they were all, this large army, remember they were large in number, let down into the city by night by the means of their strong cords and their ladders. Thus, when the morning came, they were all within the walls of the city. So just as we're coming to the end of the book of Alma, Mormon thrills us with another account of Moroni doing something so creative as a military leader. We know that the Lamanites were intimidated by having the Nephites camping outside of the city of Nephi Now we can only imagine what their response will be as they awake and discover that this same Nephite army, led by the great Captain Moroni himself, are inside of their city. Verse 24, And now, when the Lamanites awoke and saw that the armies of Moroni were within the walls, they were affrighted exceedingly, insomuch that they did flee out by the pass. And now, when Moroni saw that they were fleeing before him, He did cause that his men should march forth against them and slew many, and surrounded many others, and took them prisoners, and the remainder of them fled into the land of Moroni, which was in the borders by the seashore. So the meaning of pass here is uh, usually that that would apply to a mountain pass, 
But in this case, it's going to be the pass out of the city. Somehow they're able to get out. So some did successfully flee and they went to the city of Moroni. Others were killed uh, in this. And then there were others who were taken as prisoners. Now we're going to find that those who were prisoners um, receive a special treatment from Moroni. So we'll read of that in just a moment, but in verse 26, here's this great statement, And thus had Moroni and Pehoran, these two great friends, they've already, Moroni has proven his friendship to Pehoran so many times, and Pehoran has proven his friendship to Moroni in so many beautiful ways. And they've just recently gone against Pecus and these king men in the capital city of Zarahemla, and now they have prevailed over these Lamanites in Nephiha in this very creative and special way. So... Here's the thus from Mormon. Thus had Moroni and Pehoran obtained the possession of the city of Nephiha without the loss of one soul. Now, obviously, there were Lamanite souls who were lost, but not Nephite. And there were many of the Lamanites who were slain. So that's as miraculous as uh, Helaman's exploits with the sons of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, the stripling warriors, where not one soul was lost as they took their cities. Here, then, is the very special thing that happens to those who were taken as prisoners. And verse 27, Now it came to pass that many of the Lamanites that were prisoners, and again, this is happening inside of the city of Nephiha, were desirous to join the people of Ammon and become a free people. So these are people who have been indoctrinated. They've been indoctrinated by Amalekiah. And they were even indoctrinated by this age-old grievance narrative before that that had been passed down from their Lamanite parents. But they are still open to another way of life. They'd like to be a free people. And, uh, of course, they are influenced to be so. At the point of a sword here, that can't be denied. There is a, there is a gradient in power here that, that can be observed. However, Moroni's mercy to them in this occasion, instead of just slaying them, was undoubtedly so impressive to them that he would give them the chance to live, uh, that that it would have intrigued them very much. And then they were given this prospect of joining the people of Ammon and Jershon and living among the Nephites. It's almost unthinkable, this method, uh, this way that uh, Moroni uh, conducted his business as a military leader. It, it reflects the doctrine of Christ itself and the ways of the Savior himself and reflects this truth that it is even better to transform an enemy than it is to destroy an enemy. So that's what's happening here. Verse 28, And it came to pass that as many as were desirous, unto them it was granted according to their desires. Therefore, in verse 29, all the prisoners of the Lamanites did join the people of Ammon. Now we're going to read a little bit more about their way of life. We're going to dwell on this for just a moment. And did begin to labor exceedingly, tilling the ground, raising all manner of grain and flocks and herds of every kind. And thus were the Nephites relieved from a great burden, yea, insomuch that they were relieved from all the prisoners of the Lamanites. Remember, the Nephite, or excuse me, the Lamanite prisoners have been a difficult management issue for these Nephite armies throughout this story. Now, their labor has been used. We we noticed, uh, for example, that they were used extensively in fortifying the city of Gideon, uh, excuse me, the city of Bountiful, and they were also used uh, in burying the dead. But they also uh, mounted rebellions, and they it, it required that they were fed so that some of the provisions had to go to these Lamanite prisoners. So they were a burden. These particular Lamanite prisoners 
go in a different way. And uh, they become a blessing to the Lamanite nation, to the Nephite nation. Uh, it's, it's quite an amazing thing to, to read of. And again, it says at the end of verse 29 that the Nephites, as a result of this covenant and the Lamanites' willingness to enter into it, they were relieved from all the prisoners of the Lamanites. It's quite interesting then that as they went to Jershon and joined the people of Ammon, that they worked with them. And here's an interesting teaching from Elder Nile Maxwell on this subject. Behold, this is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Consider the significance of the Lord's use of the word work. What he is doing so lovingly and redemptively is, nevertheless, work, even for him. We likewise speak of working out our salvation and of the sweat of the brow. These are not idle phrases. Instead, they underscore the importance of work. In fact, brethren, work is always a spiritual necessity, even if for some, work is not an economic necessity. Well, now that this goal has been achieved and Nephiha has been retaken and these very amazing things have happened with these Lamanite prisoners, it's time now for Moroni to focus his attention on these other cities that are still occupied by the Lamanites. So he he now trains his crosshairs on the city of Lehi. Verse 30, Now it came to pass that Moroni, after he had obtained possession of the city of Nephiha, having taken many prisoners, which did reduce the armies of the Lamanites exceedingly, and having regained many of the Nephites who had been taken prisoners, which did strengthen the army of Moroni exceedingly, therefore Moroni went forth from the land of Nephiha to the land of Lehi. So that's a fact that we haven't read of earlier that there were also Nephite prisoners in the city of Nephiha. They now have been regained. Verse 31, And it came to pass that when the Lamanites saw that Moroni was coming against them, they were again frightened and fled before the army of Moroni. So, without conflict, those Lamanites in the city of Lehi give it up. Now, in verses 32-34, through 34, we'll find that this trend continues. And it came to pass that Moroni and his army did pursue them from city to city, until they were met by Lehi Antiankum, and the Lamanites fled from Lehi Antiankum, even down upon the borders by the seashore, until they came to the land of Moroni. And the armies of the Lamanites were all gathered together. So lest we miss this point, the Nephites have now been vacated from every city that they had once inhabited, and now they are all concentrated in the land of Moroni. So all of the armies of the Lamanites were gathered together, insomuch that they were all in one body in the land of Moroni. Now Amaron, the king of the Lamanites, was also with them. So now they're all condensed, all distilled down into this one place, and Amaron is with them. And it came to pass that Moroni and Lehi and Teancum did encamp with their armies round about in the borders of the land of Moroni, insomuch that the Lamanites were encircled about in the borders by the wilderness on the south and in the borders by the wilderness on the east. Remember, just interestingly, these are new cities. Uh, they were built in Alma chapter 50, the city of Moroni, the city of Lehi, and also the city of Nephiha. It's interesting that the person that uh, the city of Moroni is named after is now giving battle to those Lamanites that inhabit it. And uh, Lehi is with him, and of course the city Lehi that was just vacated was also named after him, undoubtedly. We're oriented geographically in this verse as well, 
by saying that the place that they're at is on the uh, on the borders of uh, in the broader Nephite uh, um, nation uh, that we call Zarahemla. They are in the borders of the wilderness on the south and in the borders of the wilderness on the east. So again, this is kind of the southeast quarter as opposed to Helaman's southwest quarter. So here we are. It has all come down to the city of Moroni. Very interestingly, and symmetrically, and poetically, it was in Alma chapter 51 when we found that Moroni was the first city to fall. So this brand new fortified city was overwhelmed by Amalickiah during that time. We saw that in verse 22 of Alma chapter 51. It said, Behold, and the behold comes after we're told that Moroni was busy dealing with the kingmen. The Lamanites had come into the land of Moroni, which was in the borders by the seashore. And it came to pass that the Nephites were not sufficiently strong in the city of Moroni. Therefore, Malachiah did drive them, slaying many. And it came to pass that Amalickiah took possession of the city, yea, possession of all their fortifications. So the city of Moroni was the original entry point of Lamanite ingress into the Nephite nation. And now it will be the final exit point as Moroni and his forces uh, surround the city and they prepare to give it battle. Now before this happens on ver- in verse 38, we will first read of what Teancum did in verses 35 through 37. So now that they, they are uh, surrounding Moroni, this gives Teancum this opportunity to do what he did before to Malachiah. And thus they did encamp for the night. For behold, the Nephites and the Lamanites also were weary because of the greatness of the march. Therefore they did not resolve upon any stratagem in the nighttime, save it were Teancum. And it's worth, uh, it's worth uh, for Mormon to say that, because we almost expect it that when the nighttime comes, there will be some strategic move that happens at night. But not here. Uh, no one resolves to do that because of the greatness of their march and they're tired. Except... It is for Teancum, save it were Teancum, for he was exceedingly angry with Amaron, insomuch that he considered that Amaron and Amalickiah his brother had been the cause of this great and lasting war between them and the Lamanites, which had been the cause of so much war and bloodshed, yea, and so much famine. And uh, that is indeed true, and we've had lots of opportunity in the past to consider Amalickiah's ascent and his ambition and the incredible amount of damage that he has done. And Amaron, of course, is now the bearer of that same standard. Verse 36, And it came to pass that Teancum in his anger did go forth into the camp of the Lamanites and did let himself down over the walls of the city. And he went forth with a cord from place to place, insomuch that he did find the king and he did cast a javelin at him, which did pierce him near the heart. Remember, he pierced Amalickiah in the heart, and unfortunately here, he pierced Amaron near the heart. But behold, the king did awaken his servants before he died, insomuch that they did pursue Teancum and slew him. Now, it came to pass that when Lehi and Moroni knew that Teancum was dead, they were exceedingly sorrowful. For behold, he had been a man who had fought valiantly for his country, yea, a true friend to liberty, and he had suffered very many exceedingly sore afflictions. But behold, he was dead, and had gone the way of all the earth. Now with this surprising thing that has taken place during the night, uh, these two forces awaken in the morning, and now they will have this conflict that we anticipated in the city of Moroni. Verse 38, 
Now it came to pass that Moroni marched forth on the morrow, and came upon the Lamanites, insomuch that they did slay them with a great slaughter, and they did drive them out of the land, and they did flee, even that they did not return at that time against the Nephites. So that's it. The Nephites have been driven out. They've been driven out of Moroni, that same city that they first came into in Alma chapter 51. And Amalickiah is dead, and so is Amaron. And so, of course, and most unfortunately, is Teancum. And Reynolds and Soljal comment upon Teancum here. When Lehi and Moroni knew that Teancum was dead, they were exceedingly sorrowful. In that glorious galaxy of patriot priests or warrior prophets, Teancum shines among the brightest. View him from whatever point we please, there is no mistaking the man. His ardent disposition, his fiery impetuosity, his zealous patriotism, his undaunted courage— his love of liberty, his entire disinterestedness, i.e. unselfishness, shined forth in every action. Indeed, we might almost call him rash. So little did he consider his personal safety when he thought the good of his country required the sacrifice. It was the night before the expected decisive battle, but the Nephite officers and men were too worn by their imposed duties to devise stratagems or to execute them. Teancum alone did not seek rest. He remembered with intense bitterness all the bloodshed, woes, hardship, famine, and etc. that had been brought about in this great and lasting war between the two races, which he rightly attributed to the infamous ambition of Amalickiah and Amaron. He reflected how he had slain the former, and determined that as he had slain Amalickiah, so should Amaron fall. But, unlike Amalickiah, Amaron's death was not instantaneous— He had time to awaken his servants before he passed away. The alarm was sounded, the guards started in pursuit, Teancum was overtaken in his effort to make a getaway. He was caught and killed. On the morrow, Moroni attacked the Lamanites, defeated them with great slaughter, captured the city of Moroni, and drove the Lamanites entirely out of the Nephite territory. In picturing the heroes of those days, Teancum looms up before us. He falls upon the thickest of the foe, seeking out their chief captains that by their death an end may possibly put to the horrors of war. Thus we find him slaying with his own hand at different times Morianton, Amalickiah, and Amaron. And and that's a great point. We can remember that Morianton was also killed by the bravery of Teancum. In fact, it is quite noticeable that in nearly all the great battles of this age, the Nephites appear to have made it a conspicuous part of their policy to slay the commander of the opposing hosts. So fell Amlici, Morianton, Jacob, Coriantumr, and others. Well, little did we know when we read about the formation and the foundation, as it said in Alma chapter 50, of this new city called Moroni, that so much would happen inside of it, uh, that it would one day be recaptured by uh, Amalickiah himself and the Lamanites, Um, and then Amaron would be inside of it, and then ultimately Amaron would be killed, and that Teancum would also meet his end in this city. We we couldn't have imagined any of that when we read of this brand new city being built in Alma chapter 50. Well, now we'll be able as readers to see uh, what happens from the three perspectives, once again, of Pehoran, Helaman, and Moroni, As we now move forward into a season of peace, we can see uh, things from their perspective. But before that, we're going to get Mormon's retrospective here on this Nephite-Lamanite war, especially 
the beginning uh, of, of Lamanite ingress into the Nephite nation. So he says in verse 39, And thus ended the thirty and first year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. And thus they had had wars and bloodsheds and famine, and affliction for the space of many years. And there had been murders and contentions and dissensions, and all manner of iniquity among the people of Nephi. Nevertheless, for the righteous' sake, yea, because of the prayers of the righteous, they were spared. That's a beautiful statement, through the prayers of the righteous, that they were spared. It sounds somewhat like Proverbs 15 and 29, and Thomas Arvaletta points this out. Uh, that proverb says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he heareth the prayer of the righteous. Now, Mormon makes this very compelling point in this piece of editorial commentary. In verse 41, But behold, because of the exceedingly great length of the war between the Nephites and the Lamanites, many had become hardened because of the exceedingly great length of the war. Now, this seems reasonable to us because of all that these people have gone through. But then Moroni adds, or Mormon adds, And many were softened because of their afflictions, insomuch that they did humble themselves before God even in the depths of humility. So the same stimulus, generally speaking, the same experience, led some to become hardened and others to become softened. So something uh, worth thinking deeply about. And um, here's some commentary on this from several sources. First, this uh, is put very succinctly from Ogden and Skinner. A protracted war can cause cynicism or build faith. Boiling water hardens eggs but softens carrots. So a long, drawn-out war causes some to be hardened while others are softened in their afflictions. Each of us must decide how anything outside us will affect us, negatively or positively. Elder Dallin H. Oaks once gave a talk. Uh, it was in a July Ensign uh, in 1998 called Adversity, and he talked about the varied effects upon people that adversity can have. Surely these great adversities are not without some eternal purpose or effect. They can turn our hearts to God, even as adversities inflict mortal hardships, they can also be the means of leading men and women to eternal blessings. Such large-scale adversities as natural disasters and wars seem to be inherent in the mortal experience. We cannot entirely prevent them, but we can determine how we will react to them. For example, the adversities of war and military service, which have been the spiritual destruction of some, have been the spiritual awakening of others. The Book of Mormon describes the contrast, quote, But behold, because of the exceedingly great length of the war between the Nephites and the Lamanites, many had become hardened because of the exceedingly great length of the war, and many were softened because of their afflictions, insomuch that they did humble themselves before God even in the depth of humility. I read of a similar contrast after the devastating hurricane that destroyed thousands of homes in Florida some years ago. A news account quoted two different persons who had suffered the same tragedy and received the same blessing. Each of their homes had been totally destroyed, but each of their family members had been spared death or injury. One said that this tragedy had destroyed his faith. How, he asked, could God allow this to happen? The other said that the experience had strengthened his faith. God had been good to him he said. Though the family's home and possessions were lost, their lives were spared, and they could rebuild the home. For one, the glass was half empty. For the other, the glass was half full. The gift of moral agency empowers each of us to choose how we will act when we suffer adversity. Now, finally, this on this subject from President Boyd K. Packer. 
The same testing in troubled times can have quite opposite effects on individuals. Three verses from the Book of Mormon teach us that because of the exceedingly great length of the war between the Nephites and the Lamanites, many had become hardened because of the exceedingly great length of the war, and many were softened because of their afflictions. Surely you know some whose lives have been filled with adversity, who have been mellowed and strengthened and refined by it, while others have come away from the same test bitter and blistered and unhappy. Now having come to this resolution, where Zarahemla has been restored, where Helaman received his supplies, and where ultimately Moroni was able to drive out the remainder of the Lamanites from the southeast portion of the land and ultimately from the city of Moroni. Now that all of this has been done, and we've come to this point of resolution, and now that we've been given this very interesting and thought-provoking retrospective from Mormon himself, we now come to what happens next during this season of peace. And we see what is done from the perspective of each of these three leaders, Pehor and Moroni and Helaman. So first Moroni, here's what he does in verse 42. And it came to pass that after Moroni had fortified those parts of the land which were most exposed to the Lamanites, until they were sufficiently strong, he returned to the city of Zarahemla, and also Helaman returned to the place of his inheritance, and there was once more peace established among the people of Nephi. So Moroni leaves the field of battle, and Helaman leaves the field of battle, both from their separate quarters in the land. They go back to Zarahemla, or at least Moroni does. Curiously, it says that Helaman returned to the place of his inheritance, and we're not sure where that is. So now that the war is over and they're back, here's what the leader of the military does. He retires. Verse 43, And Moroni yielded up the command of his armies into the hands of his son, whose name was Moroniha. And he retired to his own house that he might spend the remainder of his days in peace. When we were introduced to Moroni, he was 25 years old. And we'll find in the next chapter that he passes away. So he has achieved great success in his time. Uh, there's, there's no one quite like him. And Mormon makes that very clear when he pays tribute to him in Alma chapter 48. Moroni is truly a remarkable character. And it is now time for him to end his successful career and to turn the reins over to his son Moroniha. Uh, this comes from John Tevetnus. Moroni became chief captain at the age of 25. Moroni had given up the command of the armies to his son Moroniha, which implies that the position was inherited. Moroni himself became chief captain in the 18th year of the reign of the judges, uh, see Alma chapter 43, verse 3, and his son Moroniha in about the 31st year. If Moroniha was born when his father was 20 years of age, he would have been only 18 when he succeeded him. The prophet Mormon was so impressed with the faith, the military genius, and the character of the earlier Moroni, that his praise of the man seems almost an exaggeration. And uh, that, of course, is with reference to what we read in Alma chapter 48, if, any, if all men were like unto Moroni. He likely named his own son Moroni after the earlier general. I suggest that Mormon's admiration for the earlier Moroni derives not only from the man's character, but also from the fact that he may have been one of Mormon's paternal ancestors. This reason alone would be sufficient to explain why he would call his own son by the same name. By the same token, Moroni-ha, who, along with Moroni, commanded a group of 10,000 under Mormon, may have been named in honor of the earlier Moroni-ha, son of Moroni, and may have been a member of the same family. So we'll read about all that later in Mormon chapter 6. If Mormon belonged to a military caste, 
we have a possible explanation of why, after having refused to continue in his position, he was later readily accepted as chief captain once again. That is, it was an inherited right and responsibility that he had assumed in his youth. So that's how things move forward from Moroni's perspective. Now, Pehoran's perspective. Verse 44, and Pehoran did return to his judgment seat. Uh, then then there's an, a kind of a, a, a interjection here. And then in verse 47, we'll continue with what Pehoran did. Uh, so I think I'll read verse 30, 47 now, actually. Yea, and regulations were made concerning the law, and their judges and their chief judges were chosen. So that's what Pehoran does as he returns to his judgment seat. Now verse 44 continues, And Helaman did take upon him again to preach unto the people the word of God. So here's the third perspective from the leader of the church. For because of so many wars and contentions, it had become expedient that a regulation should be made again in the church. Therefore, Helaman and his brethren went forth and did declare the word of God with much power unto the convincing of many people of their wickedness, which did cause them to repent of their sins and to be baptized unto the Lord their God. And it came to pass that they did establish again the church of God throughout all the land. So we can see there that the church needed establishing and it needed regulating. The same thing happened, as I mentioned earlier, in Alma chapter 45, and that was after the war against Zarahemla. And then uh, Alma turns the leadership of the church over to Helaman, along with the records and the sacred things, as they will be called in the next chapter. And uh, Helaman does the same thing, and the word regulating is used there as well. Then, as a segue, this word regulations, as we've already read, is used in verse 47 as well with respect to what Pehoran will do. Yea, and regulations were made concerning the law, and their judges and their chief judges were chosen. So, again, Moroni comes home, and he retires, and uh, Moroni Ha will take over as the leader of the military. Pehoran comes home, and he resumes judgment on the judgment seat and makes regulations and refinements to the law. And that, of course, is sorely needed after what the kingman had done. And Helaman comes home, so to speak, and he resumes his work as the leader of the church and does all of the good work there that we have read that he has done earlier. So as a result of these efforts from these three perspectives, as we might imagine, the Nephites begin to prosper. That's what we will read here in the final or the penultimate, the almost final section here as uh, we find that the Nephites do begin to prosper, but happily we see that they're not lifted in pride and they're not slow to remember. Verse 48, And the people of Nephi began to prosper again in the land, and began to multiply and to wax exceedingly strong again in the land, and they began to grow exceedingly rich. But notwithstanding their riches or their strength or their prosperity, they were not lifted up in the pride of their eyes. Neither were they slow to remember the Lord their God, but they did humble themselves exceedingly before him. Yea, they did remember how great things the Lord had done for them, that he had delivered them from death and from bonds and from prisons and from all manner of afflictions, and he had delivered them out of the hands of their enemies, and they did pray unto the Lord their God continually, insomuch that the Lord did bless them according to his word, so that they did wax strong and prosper in the land. Well, how refreshing this is for us to read this, that in this instance... These Nephites were not slow to remember the Lord their God, even in their prosperity. 
We can imagine those uh, newly captured Lamanites who had made an oath and who were in the land of Jershon at this time, who were tilling the ground and who were prospering there with the people of Anti-Nephi-Lehi. We can also imagine that the 2,060 stripling warriors would have gone home and would have returned to the same place and, and what love and admiration we feel for them and the people of Ammon who live in Jershon. So all of this is happening during this time, and these people are living in peace and prosperity, uh, but they are quick to remember the Lord their God. What a beautiful point of resolution this brings us to as we come almost to the very end of the book of Alma. Uh, It's incredible to see that the Lamanites were actually successfully driven out of the Nephite nation. It seems really impossible to us uh, as that first began in Alma chapter 51. And so here we come to this um, wonderful place in the book of Helaman. It's a, it's a time for us to, to really um, have some respite as readers. Then we see that this happens in the final verse of this chapter in verse 52. And it came to pass that all these things were done. So again, there's that great sense of resolution. And Helaman died in the 30 and 5th year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. Well, that's a life well lived, Helaman. Little could we have imagined all that he would accomplish when we were first introduced to Helaman in the Book of Mormon. We found that he did not go on the Zoramite mission. We're still not sure why that was uh, when Shiblon and Corianton went. Uh, but then later we learn much more about Helaman, at least from the perspective of what he was taught. Uh, he was to be the record keeper. And uh, Alma trusted him to that degree and, um, and gave him the records and counseled him in the way that he did. And Alma trusted him enough to tell him an extended version of his story, of his conversion story in Alma chapter 36, that great chiasmic chapter that really, in many ways, is, is one of the central uh, chapters, I think, in the Book of Mormon. So Helaman was a party to that, and we still wondered a lot about his character. And then we came back to Helaman in Al- Alma chapter 45, once Alma finally departed, and um, it was time for Helaman then to be the leader of the church, and we found that he implemented many regulations. So we learned that about him, and we wondered, as we do with every transfer from one trusted um, patriarchal party to his son, uh, we wonder if he will be as great as his father. Well, uh, that's big shoes to fill, but Helaman does seem to have Alma's greatness and then we discover that he is faithful in military service as well, and he reclaims these lands in the southwestern quarter, which is so incredibly unlikely, but he really did it through many miraculous means that are recorded in his three-chapter epistle to Alma, and of course he did it with the help of the stripling warriors. So we know and love Helaman by this point, and we so admire the things that he has accomplished we're sad to see him go. But here we find in the final verse of this great chapter that Helaman dies. So with all of these things in mind, and I think with the hope that as we turn the page into Alma chapter 63, that we can retain this sense of resolution, uh, we now end this great chapter, Alma chapter 62. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon 
has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.